The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. I'm Allison Langer. I'm Andrea Askwitz. This is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. I just wanted to say it normal that time. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. Today on our show, we share an essay we love by Jessica Strasser, editor-at-large at Writer's Digest. And we share a conversation with Barbara Powell, Jessica's literary agent. Barbara is an agent with Irene Goodman Literary Agency and the author of Funny You Should Ask, Mostly Serious Answers to Mostly Serious Questions about the publishing industry. Her book is based on her Writer's Digest column of the same name. This episode is not about coronavirus, but we feel like it's important to bring you this episode right now because agents are still accepting queries and they're still selling books to publishing houses. Barbara has not even slowed down. We asked her all kinds of questions about how to goddamn get a literary agent, and she gives us the insider info. When we got on the phone with her, I was like already like in tears, losing all hope for my novel. One more rejection had just come in, and I was just like, does anyone want this shit? It was just so nice to hear her voice and to hear her hopeful attitude and encouragement. She was so hopeful. Like, she's like, oh, yeah, I know. We're all going through coronavirus and we're all this pandemic. And, you know, but people are still reading and people are listening still. And she's like selling a book a week to a publisher. Like, she was just the most positive person ever. Yeah. Yeah. And also she was, she told us a lot of good tips on how to go about this scary, scary process of trying to get a literary agent. Yeah. So when you've already written something, so you've written your book or, you know, your memoir, your short stories or your novel or whatever, and then how to get started, where do you go from here? One way to land an agent is to write a personal essay or a story that captures the attention of a literary agent, which is what happened more or less with the essay we bring you today. The story is by Jessica Strasser and was published in the Modern Love column of the New York Times, December 11th, 2014. The title of Jessica's story is An Extra Angel on Top of the Tree. I want to give the listener a content warning. The story you're about to hear is about domestic violence and murder. It's ultimately a hopeful story, but if those issues trigger you, skip ahead to minute 13 and tune back in for a really lively and exciting conversation about how to get a literary agent. Here's Jessica. I told myself I wasn't being rude when I bowed my head and ignored the man standing outside his pickup truck next to what I assumed was his child's grave. After all, cemeteries are not for socializing. This was several years ago, on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. The kind of bone-chilling, dismal Ohio afternoon that makes you dread the bleak winter to come. 
but I hadn't even thought far enough ahead to be dreading the long slog of winter. I was too busy dreading Christmas. Any other year, I would have been in full holiday mode by then, singing along to carols in my car, rushing out for seasonal beer and pre-spiked eggnog and nagging my husband to be first in line at the Christmas tree lot. But not anymore, and maybe not ever again, because the previous Christmas Eve, my best friend, college roommate, maid of honor, and the closest thing I had to a sister, had been killed in the middle of the night by an abusive ex-boyfriend who attacked her in the house where she lived alone. Only hours earlier, she and I had been baking Christmas cookies and sipping Riesling in my kitchen. Her ex was a man I had never much cared for, but had welcomed into my home more times than I could count, served food and drinks on the very plates and glasses I still had to use, and even, one day after playing doubles and tennis, gently assisted with a bandage and ice to heal a fresh wound. Other than him, I was the last person to see her alive, which placed an extra weight atop my grief, almost a responsibility. How did she seem? People asked. Was she in a good mood? What did you talk about? I played the day over and over in my head, fruitlessly searching for any small thing I could have done or said that might have changed what happened. Holidays can be laced with emotional triggers, even when no trauma is involved. In my case, as the first anniversary of my friend's Christmas Eve death approached, I could barely stand the sight of twinkling white lights, the sound of Frank Sinatra, or, worst of all, the very idea of a Christmas tree. Local news reports had described the crime scene in detail. Her own festive tree toppled during the assault, Ornaments shattered across the floor. And just like that, all my merry Fraser fur scented memories were replaced with that one horrifying picture. The year I graduated from college, I bought six silly matching Hallmark ornaments for our tight-knit group of friends. They were mice peeking out of stockings, three with the word friends stitched on them, and the rest stitched with forever. I knew they were embarrassingly cheesy, but I didn't care. I was feeling sentimental about leaving my roommates and heading out into what we, in our little college bubble, referred to with trepidation as the real world. Back on campus after the holiday break, in the living room of one of the adjacent three-bedroom apartments we shared, I dispensed the gifts, and my best friend, who cried regularly at Oprah Winfrey's show and sometimes even at commercials, became teary. We teased her, mercilessly. The senselessness of it would strike me later. It was that damned ornament, and not any of us, that was with her when she died. If we had had any way of knowing how things would turn out, what would we have done? Would we have kept each other closer? Would we, for instance, have been bolder in questioning the character of one another's boyfriends? Would we have reached out more persistently during bad breakups? Would we not have become quite so wrapped up in our own lives? And even if we had done things differently, would it have mattered? I wasn't the only one who had morbid thoughts about that little stocking-dwelling mouse. When the funeral came, a few days after Christmas, another of our college group drove across state lines to the gathering at my house, bearing a new set of matching ornaments. They were glass angels with little halos, one for each of us. After my house guests returned home, I discovered someone had forgotten to take her ornament. For weeks, I nagged my friends, trying to figure out who had accidentally left her angel behind. 
each insisted she had hers, until finally I realized what no one else had ventured to point out. Our friend must have bought six, out of habit. I carefully wrapped the extra, alongside my own, in tissue paper and put them together in my bin of decorations, unsure when or if I'd ever have the heart to take them out again. By the time I visited the cemetery that bleak day, almost a year later, signs of Christmas were already inescapable. I didn't know how I was going to make it through the month ahead. Christmas at my house had been all but canceled. My husband and I would exchange gifts, we supposed, but we wouldn't decorate or celebrate or sing. But we had extended families who were not going to cancel theirs, of course, not to mention office parties, non-stop radio and television commercials, the cheerful lights adorning our neighbors' houses and festively decorated shops. I even dreaded setting foot in the grocery store where the aisles brimmed with holiday treats like red and green Oreos. I wanted to crawl under the covers and hide until it was over. Instead, in the absence of a best friend to confide in, I ended up at her headstone, as I often did when life got to be too much. I knew, by then, the identities of those who occupied most of the neighboring plots, all relatively new arrivals. The one that made me saddest was a grave marker in the shape of a fire truck, custom made for a little boy who had died of cancer. His picture was carved into the side. Grass hadn't yet covered the earth where he had been buried. It was hard to look at. On this day, a pickup truck was parked next to the boy's grave. A man, his father, I presumed, had his windows down and the radio tuned to an NFL game. He was standing near the bed of his truck, tinkering, humming, just hanging out with his son, I guess. I couldn't imagine what that would feel like for a parent facing your first Christmas without your young boy. Here was someone who had every reason to be dreading the holidays more than I, and yet here he was, out in the daylight. I felt small, ashamed of my grief. So I gave him his privacy. I put my head down and carried my bouquet of flowers and steaming latte to my friend's gravesite, one row over. I lowered myself companionably to the ground, where I sat hidden behind her headstone, my view of the man blocked. I tried not to listen as the football game droned on and the man continued to tinker in the bed of his truck. I tried not to resent not being able to talk aloud to my friend in the way I sometimes did. I tried not to cry. I simply sat with her for a while, feeling helpless, and when my coffee was gone and my bones were stiff and cold, I pulled up my hood, got to my feet, and trudged to my car. As I pulled away, I don't know what made me look in the rearview mirror. The gravel road that curved around the edge of the plots was hardly a road at all. No one else was on it, there wasn't traffic to watch for, and any approaching car would have made a racket bumping along behind me. But I did look, and when I saw what the man had been doing, my foot went to the brake and my hand to my mouth. A short, plump Christmas tree had been erected on the little boy's grave. All that time, the man had been decorating it with round, colorful, glittery ornaments, and now it stood sparkling with cheer, a lone, defiant, bright spot on an otherwise gloomy hillside. My friend's final resting place had a front seat, at the best kind of holiday display there was, one made from selflessness, love, and hope. I watched for a while, peering through tears into my rearview mirror, unable to move forward or back. It wasn't shame I felt this time, but something blissfully less self-aware, more pure, closer to awe. Later, I would wish I had turned back to talk to the man, to thank him for showing me what moving on might look like at a time when I was unable to see how on my own, and to let him know 
What a gift that was. That story, I swear, is just fucking good. I absolutely love it. It is so beautiful. My foot went to the break and my hand to my mouth. God damn, that is such a good line. It's so hard to convey emotion by describing what happens in the moment. And then and that that did it perfectly. Okay, thank you, Jessica Strasser. You are my new idol. Jessica Strasser is the editor-at-large at at Writer's Digest. She is the author of Almost Missed You, Not That I Could Tell, and her latest, Forget You Know Me. She's won a bunch of literary awards. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Modern Love, Publishers Weekly, and other fine outlets. So find her on Twitter at Jessica Strasser and Facebook and Instagram at at Jessica Strasser Author. When we come back, you'll hear our conversation with Barbara Powell, the literary agent who signed Jessica after reading this essay. We're back. This is Andrea Askowitz, and you're listening to Writing Class Radio. Today's episode is about finding a literary agent. We're talking to Barbara Powell, literary agent at the Irene Goodman Agency. started let's just we have a bunch we have like 10 questions that we want to ask you Uh, you are like the dear sugar of publishing your book (laughs) what compliment oh my gosh wow that's that's how I experience funny you should ask this is tiny beautiful things for anyone who wants to get an agent and sell a book Okay, so, okay, the first thing I want to ask you is, um, how did you go from reading Jessica Strasser's story to signing her as a client, and then book deal? Well, it is a veritable rat king of a relationship. I was approached by Jessica when she was editor-in-chief of Writer's Digest to write a column, 14 Questions You've Been Afraid to Ask in a New York City Agent. So the column, Funny You Should Ask, was born. And during that time, Jessica was already ably represented by another agent. Uh, however, she had mentioned she had something in Modern Love. And I read it, and it, it rocked me. I was already in love with her as a person, her as an editor. She's so savvy. But reading that, I was like, this chick has got chops, yo. Um, eventually, down the line, she parted ways very amicably with her representative. I said to her, hey, if you're in the hunt for an agent, send me your stuff and I'll see if I can think of someone for you. It wasn't, uh, to me, our relationship Uh was so, the word sacred gets overused so much, but our relationship was so sacred as like, she was my editor and we had created this column and we are, I mean, and she really drilled into me and, you know, really got me constructing the column in a really exciting way. And so for me, that was our relationship. So I was like, let me help you. And then when I read it, I was like, my, 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 like a monster. So that's, I mean, she had every intention of having me read it as a, as a friend to say, can you think of any agents who might like this? Um, okay, so we don't want to make this all about coronavirus, but... <laughs> Why not? Only, I know, <laughs> just this one little question. Mm-hmm. Um, what has changed and what will change? In terms of what you are going to accept and in terms of what you're going to pitch to editors? 
Um, let me hold you and pet your head. Let me tell you a truth. We locked it down here in my apartment on March 16th. Nobody left for a good 10 days, uh, not even to go grocery shopping. Nobody left the apartment. Since March 16th to now, I have done at least a deal a week and all but one of them have been for six figures. Boom. Don't be scared, guys. I got you. <laughs> and beyond that, I feel like because we don't know what the economic climate is going to look like, the main thing that has happened is a lot of my books have moved. Anything that was publishing from April to July got pushed to from September to next March of 2021. So it's going to be real crowded in the fall and into next spring because all the summer books, the majority of them, um, and they've got, I've got big, big titles. And I'm talking everything from uh, you know, suspenseful fiction to picture books got pushed all the way. Commercial rom-com, every uh, thriller, everything got pushed. So we're going to have a space here in the summer where I'm hoping people's backlists and the books that didn't get momentum to get moved, get some good attention and get some good readership. And that will keep the enthusiasm up. And, you know, ebook sales and audio sales, of course, have uh, really started to outpace physical, but physical sales are still doing okay. Like the pie sh chart will be a third audio, a third ebook, a third physical. You're seeing a bit of a shift, but generally speaking, audiobook listeners are audiobook listeners, and ebook li readers are ebook readers, and physical book readers are physical book. So it's a slight shift, but people are still reading. And that's one thing I think is so important during this pandemic that everybody turned to an art, whether it's binge watching in your jammies, or listening to audiobooks, or podcasts, or any of this. Everybody turned to an art. And I think that is to be treasured, examined, and built upon as we move forward. And I think it will be. Okay, so I know you hate this question, but oh, um, is there such a thing as a dream agent? I think um, a lot of times when you're like, oh, she's my dream agent, it's based on the career paths of others. And the first thing I will say to anyone I sign is, I need you to keep your eyes on your own paper. I think it's one of the biggest um, swords and shields that a writer has to look around to see what's working, to look around to hear what some of their contemporaries have uh, accomplished, whether it's in sales or in publicity and marketing, whatever, it's important to gather information, but to start having the, the inability to stay focused on what your career track is and keep your eyes on your own paper can be really detrimental to a career. So I think when you say, this is my dream agent, it's somebody that is going to help you stay focused on your path and to help you create and build upon the foundation that's correct for your path. Um, I recently had an amazing conversation with an author who had been previously represented very ably, but was looking for a change in agent and in publishing house. She went out with a partial. She had several offers on it. Um, and then when the several offers came in, as we always do as agents, we said, what else do you have? What else are you working on? And she shared two other things she was working on. One of them was an absolute no for me. And one of them gave me a spark of something I think she could do instead. So when I had the call with her, I said, listen, I, you know, I love the thing you sent me. This is why I'm offering as far as what's coming next for you. This one is a no. Not only is it, is it a non, it's a no for me, but it's a non-starter. If you feel like you want this shopped, please don't pick me as your agent because this is a non-starter for me. And she was dead silent for a second and then said, 
I can't believe you have said that. And I was like, okay, why? And she's like, it's just so honest. And I was like, well, if we're going to do this for the next 30 years together, let's start out being honest. And then I presented her with the idea she hadn't thought of. And she was like, wow. And, and she then immediately spotted off two or three spinoffs based on what I had said. And she ended up signing with me and um, currently working on an offer for her from two weeks ago. <laughs> I mean, so I signed her two weeks ago and working on an offer now. So yesterday I got um, a rejection that was pretty much what you're saying, except for, so the guy said, if you don't place, he, he actually said, this is such a weird time. And he was referring to coronavirus. And he said, um, so I have to be very, very specific about what I choose. But if you don't land an agent with this manuscript, I'm totally open to what you have next. I just said that like two days ago, I just said that to somebody. I was like, and I read the whole thing. It was YA. I read the whole thing. And I was like, oh man, she, she, she had it. She had it, but then she <laughs> lost the stamina. And then some, you could tell the B storyline fell apart. And then we had, to, she had to do some kind of action. So she stuck a scene in there and I was like, oh girl, you had it. So I said, I think you will find someone because someone with more bandwidth might be able to go elbows deep with her and really dig out and do a revision, like a structural revision, that's what she needed. So I said, I, I'm pretty sure you're gonna find someone who feels differently and is ready to run with you now. However, if you don't, whatever you write next, when you're done with the whole manuscript, just come back into the inbox and be like, here I am, and do something just hands. So yes, that's a real thing. It's absolutely right, yeah, it's a real okay. thing. Okay, all right, there's hope for me yet. Mm -hmm. So, so I have a question. Um, is, should we be targeting agents who rep represent books exactly like ours, or are they not going to pick up something else similar to their title? There's a saying we have in publishing called the same but different. So what I'm looking for is the same um, kind of heat and passion and fire and chewiness of the prose, probably that same subgenre. But it, you know, it's not going to prevent me from signing two international thrillers or two you know, every man becomes a reluctant hero type suspense novels or, or that, you know, what I'm looking for is the craft of the writing. I prefer to see stuff that I know how to drive in that lane, but I'll, I'm happy to sign stuff out of my lane and work really hard, elbows out, knock on doors till my knuckles bleed on stuff that's, you know, not in my lane either. Would you ever say, oh, I don't know that this is going to sell as an, as a book, but maybe you should try screenplay or something like that. Have you ever said that or... Is that no, I've never said that. What I have said is I have no idea if this is going to sell, but if I don't try, I will regret it for the rest of my days. Um, it's a great story with Renee Ahdia. Her first book, the book that I signed her with, I was like, I don't think I can sell this because the, the genre is absolutely saturated, but I have, to, I must have you. I have to have you. And I think whatever you write next is going to be, and what she wrote next was The Wrath and the Dawn, huge international, you know, number one New York Times bestseller. So for me, it was like, at, and I, same thing with D. Watkins with his book, Nonfiction, The Cookup. I don't know why he chose to submit to me, but I read it. And when I called him, I said, I have no business representing this. You'd be insane to choose me. This is not my lane. But if I, if, if I don't have a shot at being a part of this journey, I will think about it every day until I die. And he was like, yeah, I pick you. It was so easy. Like he was just like, <laughs> and then after that, you know, he got headhunted by everybody climbing all over him. And he was like, nah, I'm happy. And we've been together all yeah, almost 12 years. So, I mean, it works out and he's a two time New York times bestseller too. So, I mean, it's, if I have the passion, I will come at you like an octopus falling out of a redwood, just like, so yeah. Okay. Here's a question I know you love. Um, are agents even relevant? 
I've never had a client ask me that. So I would say no. Like, I've never had a client say, do I need you? You know, it's important to have that layer and that teammate. Um, and make no mistake, are employees relevant? Because I work for you. Like, I think that's so interesting. Like, if you feel you need an employee to help you navigate, then yeah, get an agent. Because I work for the author. Um, it's an interesting power dynamic. At first, when it starts, you know, everyone wants an agent and get an agent. And then pretty soon, you're like, please don't make eye contact with me, Barbara. And you're only allowed to text me between 3 and 4 p.m. on Tuesdays. And also take off their shoes. I hate them. Throw them in the garbage. And I'm like, okay, whatever you want. Whatever you want. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, I, it's weird to say, but I work for the, I work for the author. I do, I do think there's a lot of authors who think they can handle it on their own. So that's maybe that's they can you know what maybe they totally can it's it also like for sale by owner right like if you're going to sell your house and put your house on the market maybe you just do that fine i have no problem with someone saying i don't need an agent yeah great fine you do you and here's what i always say too if an agent is offering on you you're gonna ask to talk to one of their clients what i suggest is asking two clients like specifically that you say like to me you'd say i'd like to talk to sophie littlefield and nick petrie and I might be like, you know what? Nick's pretty busy right now. So, okay, I can do Sophie, blah, blah, blah. But you come to me with the clients you want to talk to um, and then ask the client two questions. What does your agent do very well? And what is something your agent could improve on? And I think that will start to give you the, the next time you talk to me on the phone, you can start to tailor some questions about those two things. Okay, and then I have to ask this big question because I just, I, I'm having trouble with it myself is um, this whole American dirt situation. Who can write about what? Will you pick up something that's written by a white writer where one of the <clears throat> main characters is black and maybe the issue is, you know, a, it, like sort of predominantly like a, yeah, a, a black I, issue. I hate to say it like that because it sounds so racist, but- I hear you and I hear okay. what you're saying and I hear what your intent is in saying it. And what I will say is, you know, this is, this is such an important time in literature because of this. There has been a single lens and it's the white male cisgender lens and that is what we have been living for millennia. And now it's starting to shift and that shift should be painful and awkward and hard and at times ugly so that we can dig down and find out how to create multi-lens landscapes. I have this gorgeous stunning YA called Ziggy Stardust and Me. It is the story of two boys falling in love in the 70s. One of the boys is white and one of the boys is uh, native. The author is gay. However, his research into the nation that he explored was so in depth that he is now on the board of the powwow committee, the Bates powwow committee. They appreciate and respect so much of what he did in order to create this construct, this character, that they have absolutely invited him into the fold and they were on part of his tour with him. Uh, two of, the, of his friends from Bates were on tour with him and have consistently supported this book. Now there are other voices that say, this is appropriation. This man took the, the native experience and appropriated it. So everyone is entitled to still feel that way and to still say, hey, that's not my experience and I want our experience to be heard through our lens. That's okay. I cannot imagine anything else that this author, James Brandon, could have done to more authenticate and uplift this lens. And he even says, tell me where I made mistakes. Tell me how I can do better. 
And I think those are the conversations. And honestly, as a, you know, a, a white cisgendered woman, I might not even be the right person to be asking that question to. Um, all I can say is it is a thrilling, important, pernicious time. And I effing love it. It is so important. Do you have, do you have follow up with that, Allison? Because do you want to tell her about your novel? Just do it. No, it's just basically that. I teach in a men's prison. And so I teach memoir writing. And their stories have just like, I just love these guys so much. And so I fictionalized it because it's very difficult for me to tell their real stories because of the program that I work for yeah. or, or that I volunteer for and everything like that. So I sort of like over the years have compiled some of their stories in there, but made one big story about like a wrongful conviction. Um, but the, the, the main point is that I, I want to bring the stories of these men and the way they grew up into this, this manuscript. And it's already written and it's done and I've had so much fun doing it. And I've sent it out and had comments and come back and edited it and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, I'm querying it, but I'm getting this, oh, the American dirt situation. I don't want to touch it, but you have a good story. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. I would say, I mean, especially because of your experience and your immersion in the, in the life, I mean, there's also sensitivity reads and giving them to people to say, have I portrayed this experience through the, through the, the language and the lens that you would feel is acceptable for this experience, you know? And I mean, we did that, we do that with a lot of different stuff. Even some, even people who identify as the race, gender orientation of the book sometimes get also get sensitivity reads because there's an agreement that there's no single lens. And I think, you know, one of the things that Dee Watkins said once, and I'm like, oh God, just could weep thinking about it. It's, he's like, you know, you got to ask yourself, you're walking down the street and you see somebody, you know, homeless and you're like, okay, how can we help them? How can we help them? He's like, that's not the question. The question is, how can we help us? And I just, I mean, just saying that oh he, my God. he like changed. I was like, like another layer that I thought I had down, he just peeled it right off. And I'm like, how, and so that's how I approach things too. Is how can even just, I mean, let's bring it back to queries. Like, how can I help us? So it's, yeah, that's, that's how we need to be thinking. How can I help us? Um, do we have a few more minutes? Yeah. Where okay. am I going? <laughs> okay. Can we talk about me for a second? Um, <laughs> I can't believe you waited this long. Okay. Um, <laughs> Can you help me translate this rejection? Yes. I love your voice. You're so funny. I want to be friends with you. I just don't have the confidence to see this through. <laughs> She's uh -oh. like crying. I know. She My rejection who said brought it. Barbara to Okay, she's laughing. <laughs> I mean, when you look down, were all of your intestines on the ground or just the first coil? Like, that is like, I love you. I love everything about you. It's not you. It's me. Right? Uh -huh. That's a painful well, one. Is it fiction? No, 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 no. It's memoir. No, it's memoir. Uh, okay. So what they're saying is, yeah, the, she's absolutely, I didn't realize it was memoir. I didn't realize it was nonfiction. She's 100% legitimate and saying, I love everything about this. I don't have the confidence, but I can place you on your publishing path. Oh, God. Okay. For some people there is a clear delineation between what works in nonfiction and what doesn't. And that clear line is the platform, is how many people are currently in the market waiting to hear more from you, not only waiting to hear more from you, but are willing to pay to hear more from you. So that is the clear delineation. I, however, am like 
Lucy with the football and Charlie Brown, where again, if I just love something, I just run it at 110 miles per hour. I mean, ask my husband. So the moment I saw him, I was like, oh, I, I pick you. And he just was from there. Um, so I, I'll take it back to Dee Watkins too. Like we were having such a hard time with his incredible memoir, The Cookup. Incredible, incredible memoir. Highly recommend it. Um, and he, and I was like, okay, we need to get you, we need to get you some content out there. And then he wrote something for salon.com that went viral. And then now he's editor at large for salon.com. And so after that, it was a, a much easier path. When I say much easier, it took me 18 months to sell his memoir. I never stopped because I think I just, I would highly recommend reading it and you'll see why. Um, it's one of my father's favorite books and he is a, a white man in his seventies who likes to read a lot of golf magazines and um, thrillers and um, nonfiction. Uh, but he's just like, this book changed my life. And this book will change your, it changed my life. Um, and so, and again, it's just a, it's a lens, right? It's a lens we don't often see. Um, and so for me, it was, I, he did not have a platform of any kind, but what he had was a story that was unputdownable. And I think that word gets thrown out around a lot, but he had a story that was so riveting that I called him and said, I have no business doing this for a variety of reasons, but I have to. Um, but we did have to build his platform for us to get the kind of attention that we needed. And, you know, that's, that, that's what that is. Um, but it's about finding someone who's like, ah, I'll bang my head against the wall for a couple of years for you, you know, or someone that's like, I know what I do and I know how to do it well. And there's nothing wrong with what she said at all, at all. And I completely go 180 on that or he, whatever, whoever it was. After how many rejections would you tell an author to hang it up? Oh yeah. Or put it aside okay. or review it. Or that's whatever. nuanced. So I'll tell you how many rejections you should have like 35. That gives you a whole swap and you should be going for, um, agents that are experienced and agents that are newer with less bandwidth because agents that are more experienced, maybe, you know, make the six phone calls and get the deal rolling, but they don't have the bandwidth and um, newer agents will have bandwidth and they can still work. And they're always, you know, as long as they're reputable with reputable agencies, they have the whole support staff too. But that's why I'm like, go try those guys too, man. Try the new ones. Try the ones that publishers weekly has just announced are newly acquiring agents, someone fresh, invigorated, excited, someone willing to take some risks. That's how I cut my teeth starting out as I had the force of the agency behind me. Is there anything you want to tell our listener about funny you should ask or about anything else that we haven't mentioned? And I want to tell our listener to read this entire book. It is the book you need if you want to get oh an agent. Oh my gosh, that is just so cool. Thank you. I had a blast doing it. And um Again, I, yeah, I think it's half business card, half love letter, you know? And like, uh, I think I even say this in the book. I mean, the only way to not get this is to quit, you know? So don't. Thank you I so much. It. Really, really such a fun, awesome conversation. A pleasure to meet you. Yeah, it was a pleasure yeah, to meet thank you guys you. too. Hang in there. We'll thank get you. Okay. You'll be hearing from us. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! I hope so. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Jessica, for sharing your story with us and Barbara for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with us and help our listeners find an agent. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Social media content is by Ariel Henley, who, by the way, wrote an essay for the literary journal Narratively which also caught the attention of a literary agent. And she is currently writing her book. Yay. 
Ariel's essay can be heard on episode 75. She is a rockin' talented writer. We are so lucky to have her on our team. Thank you, Ariel. Theme music by Emia. Additional music by Justina Chandler and Pottington Bear. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, stories to study, and editing resources. If you love this show and enjoy all the extras on our website, hit the support us button. And check out the writing classes and publishing insight we're giving our Patreon supporters. $10 a month gets you an all-access pass to Andrea's publishing conversations, her discussions, questions, everything. $25 a month gets you a writing class a week with me. The classes are via Zoom, they're live, and are for one hour. We write to a prompt and share what we wrote. The class is also a great way to meet other writers, so join up. Everyone's welcome. A new episode will drop the first Wednesday of the month, so look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? One thing that I want to say about finding an agent and and once you get an agent, sometimes that agent isn't your agent forever. It would be ideal if that agent is, but I want to tell the listener that it is okay to leave an agent. 10 years ago, I scored an agent. We were together for one book and then we kind of weren't right for each other. And my the thing that I regret is that I didn't leave her sooner. So I sort of stayed in a bad relationship for for literally three years, longer than I should have. And after that, I started looking for another agent and I've gotten um, 25 rejections. Or maybe I don't need to say all that. I don't need to say, I don't, it's, it was awkward. It's never mind about all the, all the rejections I've gotten. I'm Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.